Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. This is New Books in Latin American Studies, part of the New Books Network. I'm your host, Keith Simmons. And today we're going to be talking to Dr. Gregory Weeks, uh, who has written the book Understanding Latin American Politics, published by Pearson. Uh, Dr. Weeks received his Ph.D. from the University of North Carolina. Uh, He is currently the Department Chair of Political Science and Public Administration at UNC Charlotte. Um, He's also previously the Director of Latin American Studies at UNC Charlotte. Uh, Dr. Weeks specializes in U.S. Latin American Affairs, uh, and he is also currently the editor of The Latin Americanist, a journal which looks at uh, political affairs of the region. Uh, Dr. Weeks, uh, I'd like to thank you for joining us on the show today. Well, thank you very much for having me. Um, I wonder if you could start off by first just telling us a little bit about your background, um, how you uh, came to be a professor um, at UNC Charlotte. Sure. It's funny how these links happen. Um, I grew up in San Diego, uh, and almost everybody took Spanish. So throughout school, I took Spanish. Um, When I got to college at UC Berkeley, it was natural for me to continue studying Spanish, and but I was also interested in political science. So uh, what I ended up doing was double majoring in political science and Spanish. I actually spent a year abroad in Spain and go to Latin America, as it turned out, but uh, kind of, you know, deepening my language skills. And so what's interesting is that the two majors kind of came together so that I was gradually uh, learning through a Latin American politics class and other classes about Latin American politics and getting interested in it. So from there, I wasn't really sure what I wanted to do and uh, ended up getting a a master's degree at San Diego State uh, in political science. And my thesis was on U.S. policy toward Latin America. And then I used that as a springboard into a Ph.D. program at uh, UNC Chapel Hill. And um, when I was there, there was a lot of opportunities um, and funding to do research in Chile. So like a number of other people, some of my cohorts are at other universities. Um, I went to Chile and uh, just gradually developed a research program around Chilean politics which ultimately became my dissertation. But uh, I never lost interest in U.S.-Latin American relations, so those two things kind of kept going. Um, but really, when I think about it, a lot of it boils down to I, was, I started studying Spanish, and it went from there. Wow, and so... It seems like what you've been able to do also through a lot of your writings, you've published a number of books, um, and the most recent one and the one that we're going to talk about today um, is your text, Understanding Latin American Politics. And so um, part of, I suspect, your your project um, is to try to understand um, Latin American politics 
purely from the perspective of Latin America or as much as possible. But um, you make it relatively evident throughout that um, it's impossible to understand all of Latin American politics without really bringing in a lot of the international scene. That's true. And I make a big point of that when I teach my class, um, because even in the United States, we have a tendency to overemphasize the role of the United States so that, you know, we we tend to think even for good reasons is that we're trying to do better in the world, but we think the U.S. causes everything. And um, through in this book, what I want to say is, no, the U.S. doesn't. There's so much going on on the ground at the local level, at the national level. And so what we need to do is look at how they interact. The U.S. is incredibly important, but the U.S. is not somehow um, all-powerful and doing things all the time. So that's really one thing that I do want to have you know, readers, students get out of this book is that, Let's always make sure we look at all different levels and not just fixate on one because then we lose the the bigger picture. Uh, and one of the things that um, I think is interesting about Latin American history is that there are just a number of, of fascinating stories and, and factoids. Um, and you deliver a lot of them throughout the book. I mean, for example, one of the ones that um, I found fascinating is when you talk about Bolivia um, and that it's the second poorest country um, in the Western Hemisphere behind Haiti, uh, but that it had nearly 200 coups um, since independence in 1825. And I think um, if students understand those types of aspects about Latin America, um, they'll see it as a really um, intimate kind of space rather than, I think, Simply being, um, you know, Cuba uh, and Castro, or or being uh, Venezuela and, and Hugo Chavez. Um, so I say that to ask, when you're introducing Latin America to students for the first time, um, what is it that you would say to them to try to get them to really start thinking about Latin America? Um, as a whole, would it be some of the anecdotes that that I just mentioned, or is there something else that you would use? Um, I do two things, really. Um, one is to, and I do this in the first lecture, is to say that Latin America in many ways doesn't exist. So that we, and I tell them I'm going to use the phrase Latin America all the time, but that there's so much diversity within it that we have to always make sure that if we're looking at one case, that we're not looking at all cases. Um, but then what I do is uh, is I bring in current events. So that really is kind of an anecdote, but I try to engage them by saying, okay, look, here's something that's going on right now in Argentina. So we have the debt issue. Okay, well, then let's just look at it. What's, how did this happen at the national level? What's the connection at the international level with, um, with U.S. courts, international banks? And then what's on the local level as people protest? So I try to use current events as a way to make those kinds of connections and then make the textbook something that's actually useful and not just something they're trying to spit back. Um, and I would certainly love to get into uh, some of those current events um, a little bit later on in the interview. Um, for those readers who might be listening um, to us, I mean, there are a number of things that are going on right now, including um, the elections in Brazil, as well as the release of a new uh, biopic uh, regarding Simone Bolivar. So before we jump into some of those current events, uh, I wonder if you could talk to us a little bit about um, 
the two major sort of theories or ways that you um, analyze or that you, you get students to analyze um, Latin American politics? Because there's basically three levels, um, as I understand it, regarding how you should consider politics. And then there's also a really strong economic component. Sure. So um, the structure of the book is that I want to make sure they look at the the, you know, the international, national, and local levels. Um, but then I also want them to get at some of the core theories that have driven understanding of Latin American politics, which is modernization theory and dependency theory. And um, so I, I, I make the point is that these 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 are theories, <clears throat> excuse me, that have been around for decades. Um, and they actually, even if they're not explicitly discussed, are still uppermost in a lot of people's minds, even unconsciously. So modernization theory is a theory of how you take off and that taking off is generally copying the types of institutions and economic strategies of the United States, which is highly prevalent in U.S. policy, that idea. Um, and the dependency theory is in many ways why is Latin America being held back because of the types of things that it exports and because of its um, reliance on the U.S. economy in particular. And that idea still is highly prevalent in a lot of leftist or even center leftist governments around Latin America. The, the idea that the U.S. is something that is not contributing to Latin American development, but pulling it back. So I, I use those theories as a frame, not as a dogmatic thing of where you need to choose between a theory or one is better, but rather that here's these two really contrasting theories, one of which modernization originated in the United States, the other dependency which originated in Latin America, and what's the tension between those two ideas throughout um, Latin American political history. And in some respects, it seems as though there's a third um, theory that really comes into play when we're trying to understand Latin America, and it's the concept of democracy. Sure. Um, in one section of the book, following um, the introduction of your theories, you talk about um, the independence movements and some of the post-independence problems that um, Latin American countries faced. And one of them is to attempt to establish um countries. And I think one of the things that, that you've done that is really interesting is that you separate the concept of state um, from nation. Uh, and I was wondering if it would be possible for you to um, perhaps explain why that division is almost necessary and what it means when, when we're trying to study um, contemporary politics. Sure. That's really... Um very political science oriented, the idea of really making sure to differentiate between the two so that the state refers to the administrative machinery of a government. So, you know, if you're a state, you're, you have certain boundaries, you're recognized internationally, you govern throughout the particular territory that you have and that sort of thing. It's really, uh, it's a mechanical, it's something you can see, is it there or not there? And then a nation is this feeling of um, cohesion, the idea that we have these shared, deeply shared goals, deeply shared histories, often linguistic, um, racial. There's all sorts of things, of course, that um, bind people together. And uh, the problem that so many countries have is that there's multiple nations within one state. And when you have that, then you end up uh, oftentimes with pretty severe conflict. 
So that can be indigenous groups, in particular in Latin America, is a major uh, problem. Um, and that was uh, the case where you have the lighter skin population really seeking to dominate and um, practically, in some cases, exterminate the indigenous populations. Um, but it can also mean it's, it's ethnic, it's linguistic, uh, so that there's divisions within countries that persist till today, um, but in many cases originated right after independence. Uh, and one of the um, arguments that you make in the book, which I thought was also really riveting, is to say that um, there has been no nation uh, in Latin America that has disappeared um, from the map, per se. But there have been a number of state changes that have occurred since um, independence, which uh, I think historians roughly um, attribute to 1825 um, as essentially the entire continent being liberated. Um, however, states do frequently change, and one of the big influences for state change um, is the military. Um, so I wonder if you could talk to us a little bit about um, how the military has played a role um, in sort of creating or destroying states in Latin America, and how this might differ from the way we think about the military in a place like perhaps um, the United States. Well, the military was um, central and views itself even now as central um, to the development really both of the state and the nation so that the military saw itself as the one symbol of uh, unity that everybody could look to as, and it believes itself to be the most organized, in many cases it was, uh, entity right after the wars for independence so that the militaries themselves felt they were creating a sense of nationalism but then they also saw themselves very often as the only power that could possibly um, bring uh, all these different groups together under one particular state and um, so they'd have to fight and certainly that was the case even in places like Argentina where you have these far-flung areas and caudillos and the military really saw itself as the one force that was capable of doing that which then gave it a legacy of military of uh, political intervention and the belief that if uh, things got tough politically that it had the right and even the obligation to step in um, in a way that really we have not experienced in the US where for example uh, George Washington made very clear that he was a civilian president. He wasn't a military president. And um, the military remained much more subordinate. And even when we have um, the military constantly stepping in and attempting to um, create a new state or to try to regulate um, whether a state's going to be uh, liberal or conservative, um, one of the things that seems really interesting is that each government attempts to create a constitution. Um, and this constitution is supposed to be really important, it seems, for um, solidifying the state. And again, one of the, the um, interesting among many um, facts that you give in the book is that um, from 1800 to 2006, um, there were a total of 251 constitutions. Um, and that's supposed to average out, I think, to about 12 um, per country. Um, and so uh, I'm curious as to 
um, does the Constitution sort of mean something different as a consequence to Latin American countries compared to what it means um, to the United States um, in the sense that we've only had uh, roughly uh, two or so, as, as many would argue, in terms of, of constitutions? Yeah, that's a really a great question, and it's something that I, I talk explicitly about in class, is that um, the Constitution of Latin America has really, in many ways, come to be seen as connected to a government. And so, in the United States, it's connected to uh, the independence movement, in a sense, and a particular era, but not but not governments. We might try to add an amendment here or there, but in general, everybody accepts, okay, we need to keep this particular document. And in Latin America, you, you see changes uh, and with presidents coming in and saying as a part of their platform, like Hugo Chavez, I'm going to change the whole constitution. Um, and the other, the, the other really different aspect of Latin American constitutions versus the U.S. Constitution is that some of them are incredibly long. So they'll have over 300 articles, and they are almost aspirational documents. Here's what we want to achieve um, in almost every sort of detail you can possibly think. And in the United States, we maintain this very short, very bare-boned um, sort of document that we keep interpreting differently and we fight over its interpretation. Um, but you, you would never ever get anywhere in U.S. politics if you said you wanted to create a constitutional commission to write a new constitution. I mean, you, you'd be, I mean, you'd be a dead duck. Whereas in Latin America, that's just common. Right. And unfortunately, one of the other things that seems relatively common um, in, in Latin American history and politics um, is sort of the intervention uh, by the United States um, in Latin American affairs. Um, and so I think up to this point, um, uh, we've been able to sort of sketch a trajectory for Latin American history and politics from roughly the beginning of the 19th century um, up into the beginning of the 20th. And in the 20th, we see a number of interventions by the United States um, into Latin America. And so uh, I was wondering if you could explain what were some of the motivating forces uh, for the United States to intervene so heavily in Latin America, what some of the consequences of those interventions may have been? Well, if you're speaking just over time, um, the U.S. intervention has almost always had a negative consequence for um, Latin American democracy, in many cases for human rights as well, unfortunately, um, so that uh, we, we had a very paternalistic attitude, a very superior attitude uh, that would end up, uh, and it's really not fully gone away, is that we have a certain way of doing things, and if you just follow our suggestions, things will get better. And in some cases, we'll actually occupy the country and try to make them better for you. Um, but what you just see over and over and over is um, a, a backlash. So you get these unintended consequences that over the long term make the situation worse, especially for the United States. So um, in Cuba, we pretty much took Cuba from Spain, um, completely dominated it 
forced our own ideas into their constitution. And that was critical uh, over time to giving rise <clears throat> to people like Fidel Castro. Um, same in Nicaragua, helped give rise to the Sandinistas. So, uh, you know, we, we, we have these um, governments we consider adversaries. And um, unfortunately, we don't take a good look very often at how much the United States itself helped contribute to those forces taking power in the first place. And one of the things that a lot of these governments still struggle over, um, particularly in the 20th century, um, is trying to create um, a modern or an industrialized economy. Um, you talked about it earlier um, around the concepts of, of modernization and dependency theory and how um, these different ideas sort of influence um, how a state's uh, economy develops. But I'm wondering if you could um, sketch for myself and our, our listeners, uh, what are some of the basic problems regarding um, economies that Latin American countries face um, in the 20th century? And um, were there any successes? Um, were, it seems like a high number of them uh, ultimately struggle and still struggle to try to create um, a sustainable economy. Yeah, by far the biggest problem, uh, and this was true, it's been true throughout Latin American history and it's true now, is um, a reliance on commodities. So it's a reliance on selling primary products and sometimes um, one or two in particular. And so this could be copper in Chile, it can be fruit in Central America, it could be oil in Venezuela, it can be, you know, whatever the case might be. And so your entire economy and oftentimes political stability hinges on the international price for this good. And so you just, if you read the news, um, you, you just see how, okay, Latin America has low forecasts this year. Why? Because the prices of main commodities are down. And so if your economy is not sufficiently diversified, you're going to end up um, rising and falling just with international prices, which of course you have no control over. Um, so the, the, the critical um, challenge for Latin American countries has been to, uh, if not industrialize, at least to create some sorts of goods that are higher, higher value added. So it's not just um, selling grapes, but rather in the Chilean case, but selling wine. Um, so that you can actually get something a little bit more out of it and the prices for those goods are a little bit more stable. Um, so that's been a huge problem. Now, it doesn't mean that all countries are mired all the time in um, recession. So you've had, over time, some successful development in Brazil. I mean, we buy Brazilian jets, for example. But unfortunately, too often the successes are really outweighed uh, in many cases by the um, by the problem of that reliance on primary goods. And I also know that, um, as you mentioned, the global economy uh, has a really huge impact um, on uh, Latin America. Uh, I think there's there's some sort of quote. 
um, that says that basically when Europe catches a cold, the rest of the world catches a flu um, or, or something right. like that when it, when it comes to the economy. Um, and I think one of the other ways in which um, the global economy and, and even um, the inter-American economy is uh, impacted or, or a significant force to influence it um, concerns debt. Um, my understanding, and I think certainly for a lot of our listeners around debt, is um, that it's it's extremely complex yet simple at the same time. Um, I mean, you have money, you're supposed to pay it off, and and that's that. But certainly, the story for Latin America is is nowhere near as simple. So, I'm wondering if you could clarify um, what debt means to Latin America and how countries have to try to um, deal with the amount of debt that they have to to creditors around the world. Well, it's true. You know, I would even say, though, in many ways, debt is, it's more simple than complicated. So that you have the exact same problems that you would have if you were, if you had a personal credit card and you had very bad credit. So um, if, if you look at uh, Venezuelan bonds, for example, if uh, you know if they want to get anybody to buy them, they, they there has to be high yield. People are only going to invest if there is uh, a high payoff. If you're risky, and uh, you know nobody wants to uh, lend to those at low uh, interest rates if there's any risk that this is going to not be repaid. So that. Uh, Latin American countries can accumulate debt, and they can accumulate more debt by virtue of having to pay off interest rather than principal. Um, the ways it gets more complicated is if uh, the debt is denominated in dollars versus the local currency, because you can manipulate your local currency, but you can't manipulate the dollar. Um, but I would honestly say that for the that for a very solid understanding of Latin American debt, if you just think about a credit card, then it makes pretty good sense. Um, and there's various other things at play, whether or not there's um, a lot of money floating around. So, for example, when oil prices shot up in the 1970s, oil-producing countries in the Middle East were trying to invest, and so there was a lot of money available. Other times that dries up, and then when that dried up, of course, it's when we saw a crash in um, the early 1980s. So um, the, the the simple part is is actually pretty is, is a pretty strong gives you a strong understanding of it. Um, obviously, it's not the only story, but it just does show that if you're accumulating debt, a lot of your productive capacity has to go to repaying the debt as opposed to spending money on things that might be more productive. And even when we discuss um, the concept of debt, trying to create economies, trying to um, establish states which have the greatest representation um, for all Latin Americans, um, there's a particular story that you highlight um, numerous times throughout the text, which um, I found fascinating and I learned a lot about, and it's regarding women um, in Latin America. Um, because while all of this is going on with, with global economics and some 
sometimes with with military coups and whatnot. Um, women play a particularly interesting role um, in Latin American history and politics that I think is not necessarily as as understood um, as most would certainly hope. So um, I was wondering if you could just tell us um, the types of roles that women have played in trying to help create the Latin American state um, and why it might matter today. Well, I can give you two examples. One is the uh, response to dictatorship because um, women were politicized to a significant degree during dictatorships because um, they're the, the, the person who is responsible for the family and um, they were having often the breadwinner arrested, taken away. Um, and so they may or may not have been active politically themselves, but that made them politically active. And then they started to join together. Uh, and that created a political movement that otherwise wouldn't have existed. At the same time, many of these dictatorships, just because of uh, sort of age-old patriarchy, left a space, political space for women that was unavailable to men. So you think of the Madres de la Plaza de Mayo, the women who march uh, in this main center square of Buenos Aires in Argentina during the dictatorship, and even now, uh, at least they were up until not long ago, um, that was something that they were silent and they were women, and they were there as mothers and grandmothers and, uh, and sisters. That was something that men couldn't do, and it was extremely potent politically. Um, and then those would later carry over to some degree after the dictatorship. Uh, another example uh, is economic crisis. So for similar reasons is that women became politicized because they were saying, look, at, we're, we're not bringing enough money. I don't have enough money for food. And um, that would then spark uh, a sort of a political activism that aimed against the government, and in some cases was quite radical, um, and again, made women, gave women a political space and made them more politicized than they would otherwise have been. And um, somewhat on, on the topic of women, uh, what I would like to do is diverge somewhat from, I think, our, our more typical format for um, interviews, because um, since you really study a lot of, of contemporary politics and current affairs for Latin America. Um, I wonder if you would be able to perhaps provide some some insight and analysis um, for our listeners on um, things that are happening right now and sort of um, highlighting how it has an impact on, um, as you mentioned, the local, national, and international levels. Um, and so for uh, one thing that, that's currently going on are the elections in Brazil, uh, which occurred on October 5th. And um, essentially, uh, Dilma Rousseff, who is um, president of Brazil, will be facing um, a runoff election, I believe, on October the 26th. So um, I wonder if you could just talk to us about um, the emergence of, of Brazilian democracy and perhaps um, democracy much more broadly in Latin America, particularly following the end of the Cold War. Sure. I mean, one thing that's fascinating about the Brazilian election, um, beyond the kind of horse race part of it, because there was a candidate, Marina Silva, who was a sort of got really hyped and then fell back. But what's what's remarkable 
um, with with Brazil is that you have a uh, a woman as president you're running for re-election and she was a member of the opposition to the dictatorship um, you know actively uh, opposed the dictatorship and yet this is all completely normal in other words it's uh, it's an interesting election but it's boring in the sense that <laughs> it's not life or death right and 25 years ago that's just unthinkable uh, 30 40 years ago it's just on you mean you, you can't even imagine such a thing so that what I see uh, in Latin America is that um, you have these elections with people with sometimes quite radical backgrounds, but um, they've joined mainstream political parties, and we have discussions between different ideologies that in mo not all, but in most countries is, is about issues, um, and it's not, you know, if this candidate wins, then... Uh, the whole world is going to collapse because communism is going to take over the country. So if mm -hmm. you compare these elections to, say, the 1970 election in, in Chile that um, brought Salvador Allende to power, uh, the, the change since the Cold War is just its amazing, really. Uh, and the fact, even thinking of women, that um, having women run and win presidential elections in Latin America is now absolutely normal. Nobody thinks twice about it. In the U.S., we're still we still can't barely handle it, um, and yet in Latin America, this has been now routine for a while. And what I think is also interesting in, in speaking of, of things that the United States can't handle, uh, I understand that there are two um, particular characteristics about um, elections in um, Latin America, or at least uh, regarding Brazil, that aren't necessarily present with the United States. Uh, one um, are mandatory elections. Um, I think based on early turnouts, uh, I think roughly 80% of uh, Brazil's population, which I believe is somewhere around 160 million people, um, actually voted um, yesterday and October 5th for the elections. And the other thing is that I'm not certain if this is in Brazil, but I know it's certainly present in Venezuela, uh, is the utilization of um, online voting, or at least um, in in formats that would be easier for um, people to, to get access and sort of exercise um, what's supposed to be a political right, um, rather than having to, to physically um, turn up for elections. Um, but I mean, how do how do we explain sort of ignoring those aspects of of Latin American democracies and elections instead of of celebrating them and considering adopting them in the United States? Well, it's a little more complicated because if you think about, um, you're talking about mandatory voting. Is that what you were right. saying? Yes. Um, is that there's also a backlash? So, for example, in Chile. Um, they, you know, there was a movement against it. So people are saying, well, what if I don't want to vote? Um, and in Brazil, what do you see in this election, the last election, is almost 30% of the people spoiled their ballot in some form um, because they had to vote and didn't want to. So I wouldn't mind it being a debate, but forcing people to vote isn't the same necessarily as making them engage citizens. Um, but it's certainly worth a 
worth a discussion. Um, with online voting, I mean, you can you have similar discussions. It's you know, or you know, use of machines versus paper ballots or things like that. Um, I would think that in the United States, we'd be well served by um, by looking all across the world, as opposed to assuming we're the best model, but looking across the world for what other countries do and what's positive and negative. Uh, actually, from my perspective, one of the if you even think about the Brazilian election, <clears throat> one of the things that the United States would be well served to look at is having a regular popular vote. And if someone doesn't get to 50%, then have the, the next two do a runoff. Because uh, obviously in our system, you can, you can lose the popular vote and become president. Right. So uh, I would even say that's more important of getting engagement is that uh, you can uh, be more certain your vote matters somewhat depending on what's, you know, because in the U.S., if you're in a lot of states, your vote basically doesn't matter because that state's locked up for the time being. Um, but then it also provides for a clear majority in the second round, and uh, as opposed to having somebody come to office who, um, you know, only had a plurality or just didn't, didn't have a clear mandate. Absolutely. Um, and... One of the other things that I kind of wonder about um, compulsory voting is uh, whether or not there's an attempt to force all citizens to participate as a result of, of some of the dictatorship um, experiences um, in Latin America. I mean, is this supposed to be um, an example of, you know, everyone is, is participating, this is a democracy, this is fair and free, um, and it's it's nothing like a dictatorship. Is it supposed to be that type of a response or is there something else that might be at play in terms of of compulsory voting no i think that's a good way to think about it is that it's a it's an affirmation that um that everybody is going to be participating in the political process uh and i do i mean i it's well-meaning it's intended to say hey look even if you don't think politics matters here's a little kick in the pants to make you engage um, and that was something that for many years we were unable to do because we had 20 years of dictatorship or whatever the case might be. So, yes, I, I do think that's the impetus for it. Um, and the empirical question is, does it make people more engaged or not? Right. And one of the ways that um, Latin America is attempting to actually engage the world, uh, particularly with culture, um, is with the release of a new movie, which is supposed to be a biopic of uh, Simon Bolivar, um, who is known as the liberator and I believe is considered to be um, the George Washington, in essence, of, of Latin America. So um, I wonder if you would be able to talk to us a little bit about um, Bolivar um, and perhaps anything that you might know um, about the movie that's been released. Um, and I guess if you could perhaps give a sort of prediction as to um, the reception of that movie uh, in the United States. Well, um, that's a tough question, I, uh, not being a movie critic, but the, Bolivar is a figure that's been appropriated by uh, all across Latin America forever. So he can be, it's interesting because he can kind of be anything you want. Um, he can represent order. He can represent democracy. He can represent fairness. You know, he can do all these things. Um, 
And so each type, many different governments tried to kind of take their own vision of him. Hugo Chavez is by far now the most uh, well-known, so that for him, Bolivar is the uh, anti-imperialist hero. He's the person who tried to unite Latin America while excluding and oh, the United States and viewing the U.S. with um, skepticism. So the question with this movie, um, which I believe is Venezuelan, if I remember correctly, is, yes, it is. Which one of these visions does it show? Now, I'm guessing it's going to show the the kind of Venezuelan slash Chavez uh, view, um, just because that's that's where it's coming from. Um, so I think the reception of the movie, at least in the United States, may well depend on um, how much they emphasize the sort of anti-Europe, anti-U.S. angle. And I don't have any idea how much they do so. The one interesting thing, a kind of uh, anecdote about the movie that I had read was that historians were um, a little annoyed because they made the Bolivar character, the actor, this big, burly, handsome guy. <laughs> and they said that Bolivar, you know, he weighed like 130 sopping wet. <laughs> and was very slight and was physically very unimposing. But that's not the kind of, people want their heroes to be tall and big. So that's what they're giving them. Right. And I, I also understand that um, Bolivar really does have a background that's comparable to George Washington um, in the sense that he um, is considered to have been uh, of the elite class. Um, in terms of, of social rank. Yeah. Um, and I believe he also actually spent time in uh, Paris um, during uh, the time of the French Revolution. I believe he was around right when um, Napoleon was either on the verge of or when he actually did uh, crown himself emperor of France. Well, you've got me on the history part. You probably know more of that than me. But there is no doubt at all that he was an aristocrat that um, that you know he was he was not necessarily somebody who was going to um, you know try to rile up the masses is that he he was much more interested in order and I think it's just an example of how different governments can just take the bits that they like and admirers can take the parts that they like and just kind of shove the rest to the side. Um, one particular topic that I would like for us to discuss um, briefly uh, is regarding um, Central America. Um, a couple of weeks ago, uh, it was announced that essentially there was a, a crisis uh, on the border between the United States and Mexico because of the large influx of um, immigrants, um, particularly from Central American countries. Um, and there was a dilemma regarding what should be done um, with those who are, are seeking some measure of, of political asylum um, and, and protection within the United States. So um, I'm wondering if you could uh, tell us what are the forces that drove um, so many individuals, particularly um, young boys and girls, to try to make the journey to the United States? Um, and what could some of the potential policy um, options uh, could the United States explore, and what could lead to the best path best path forward um, regarding the situation? 
Yeah, that's a hard question that a lot of people have been really trying to sort out. I mean, we know that the the the, the stream of migration is uh, due to uh, very bad conditions, uh, both in terms in Central America in terms of of economics and in terms of violence, particularly in the northern part. So, you know, we're generally talking about um, Guatemala, Honduras, and El Salvador. There are also established communities in the United States, so that there there are destinations that they're they're trying to reach. Um, that's more or less a constant. Now the surge is a lot more difficult to uh, to pinpoint because there's no clear um, trigger. But what uh, at least one reasonable hypothesis is that there was a sense on the part of uh, migrants already in the United States that if children could make their way to the U.S., that they had a chance of um, of obtaining legal status. And so it does seem that once there was a, a, a really committed public relations blitz to uh, tell people, look at this, you really this can't this isn't going to have the outcome that you want, then we saw things settle down again. They're never going to go away. But what that also points to is that um, one of the solutions is not the only one, um, but one solution is for the United States to actually pass uh, coherent immigration reform and to have very clear rules. This is how this is going to get done. This is how this is going to get done. Um, and uh, to have it actually make sense, and that way there's not people don't migrate based on something they think might happen, or at least they're less likely to. And it's very clear what are the routes that need to be taken in order to migrate legally. And at the same time, the U.S. will have to make sure that those aren't overly difficult because then people will keep coming illegally anyway. But it's a huge, huge problem that also gets down to economics and politics in Central America. But the U.S. side, we do ourselves a tremendous favor by finally passing immigration reform that included um, provisions for workers, included enforcement, included all the things that we've been talking about now for years and not doing much about. Uh, it certainly does sound like... Um quite the the complex issue uh, and unfortunately i don't think it is one that we'd be able to resolve um in the short time that we have uh but before we go i was wondering dr weeks if you could perhaps um just uh, mention if you have um a book um, project that you might be working on or or some current um research that our listeners might want to uh, be on the lookout for in the future yes actually um, what I'm what I'm trying to finish and actually finish up this week is um, the revised draft of a second edition of my book on U.S. Latin American relations. Um, and so uh, that book was published um, about what seven years ago, and so now I'm finally able to to revise it and. Um, add a new chapter and things like that. So I'm working really hard to get that finished, and I hope uh, that should be out um, next year. So that's with uh, Wiley, um, and I hope that it's accessible to, you know, the scholars, to students, 
you know, to a broader audience, but that's the, that's the key project I'm trying to finish up now. Um, that certainly sounds, um, amazing. And, uh, I, I hope to um, be able to uh, read the book once it comes out, particularly with, with the second edition. Um, and Dr. Weeks, I'd like to thank you for all of the time that you took out to uh, talk to us today. Um, and hopefully we'd be able to talk in the future. Absolutely. It was my pleasure. All right. Thank you so much. You're welcome. Thanks for joining us this week on New Books in Latin American Studies. We've just heard from Dr. Greg Weeks, uh, who has written the book Understanding Latin American Politics. Uh, Dr. Weeks is the Department Chair of Political Science and Public Administration at UNC Charlotte. Uh, Dr. Weeks can be followed on his blog, Two Weeks Notice, a Latin American Politics blog at weeksnotice.blogspot.com. And Dr. Weeks is also on Twitter. He can be followed at Greg Weeks UNCC. Once again, this is your host, Keith Simmons, signing off for now. Thank you.